Let's ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. God, we uh, are thankful that we get to come together as a church and as a family uh, and just open up your word and know that it's alive and that you have things that you want to say to us tonight. God, every heart here is not here by accident. We're here as part of, <clears throat> part of your plan. And we pray that you would uh, just work your plan out tonight, that each one of us would hear and respond and obey and walk with you closer through your word tonight. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Jude, as we wrap up, the, well, as we start and end the book of Jude tonight, we're going to wrap up simultaneously the letters written to the churches, with the exception of Revelation, which we'll dive into first Wednesday of next year. And so really, just kind of, just for recap, if you will, you know, we started the year in Romans chapter 1, and that was a long time ago, but we have successfully covered all of the letters that were written specifically to the church in terms of here's how the church is supposed to function. And, and it's an important cluster of books, because it's the chunk that's written for New Testament believers. It's for people who believe in Jesus Christ, and all scripture applies to us in that sense. But there are passages of Scripture that are written specifically as history. Here's the testimony of what God has done. Or prophecy. Here's here's the future of what God is going to do. But what we've covered this year is a really important passage of Scripture. Uh, Here is how God wants to have a relationship with you. Here's how God wants to work in your life. Here's how a church should function. Here's how your role in the church should function. Here's how you should be walking with the Lord. Here's how you should be walking with other believers. And so it's just really been... uh, it's really, I've been just incredibly blessed by it. I hope you guys have too. But we're sort of wrapping up a, not just a book tonight, but kind of a section of the Bible. And so we've covered, if you will, the conduct and the life of a believer in Christ this year. Okay, and so Jude is this short little one-chapter book at the very end of, those, of that chunk, if you will. And uh, lest you think, oh, it's short, therefore it's significant, it's insignificant. Jude goes with the less is more approach, and Jude is going to put a little zinger in the end. And I think it's, you know, as I was reading it this week and praying about it, it's really an incredibly apt and relevant ending uh, for the year, for uh, just kind of where I think we're at as a church, where I'm at as, a, as an individual believer, but just really just in its placement in the scriptures. And you kind of think about just what we covered in Romans and First and Second Corinthians, and Galatians, and Ephesians, and Philippians, and Colossians, and First and Second Thessalonians, and First and Second Timothy, and Titus, and Philemon, and Hebrews, and James, First and Second Peter, First and Second Third John. All of that brings us to the Book of Jude, and Jude is going to really, in a lot of ways, tie it all together for us. And so he starts off by telling us who's writing it. He says, "Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James." Now. There's a couple of different people named Jude in the scriptures, and so we look at it, we say, okay, who's the, who's the most likely candidate, if you will, and when church history has held for a long time that uh, this is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, half-brother in the sense that he had the same mother, Mary, but Jude's father was Joseph the carpenter, and Jesus' father was God. But it's interesting then that Jude doesn't identify himself as the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He identifies himself as the brother of James. James, at this point, is 
one of the major leaders in the church. But Jude is walking with, he's approaching his letter with this humility that's also coupled with confidence that I really like. He, you know, if I was listening to a pastor this week, he said, if I was the half-brother of Christ, you would all know it by now, right? Like, it would just sort of go without saying that every conversation I would find a way to mention, you know, my half-brother Jesus. Oh, you didn't know? Sorry, I forgot to tell you. You know, we're actually, we're related. Yes, yeah, same mom. Yeah, shared a bedroom with the guy. Uh, I know, actually, if you want to know any special details about Jesus, I would be the guy to talk to. Um, Jude just says, you know, I'm a bondservant of Christ. And a bondservant is the, the Old Testament idea of a slave willingly, a person who has come under someone's uh, authority as a means of paying off a debt, but has said, I am so well treated here that I don't ever want to leave. And so Jude says, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm not the brother of Christ. That's not my role. My role is I'm a servant of Christ. And Jude, his name in the Gospels were given the names of Jesus' brother. His name would have been Judas, and he presumably shortened it because that's not quite as, you know, it's not really a great name to have uh, at any point in time ever since the death of Christ. So he's starting off, he's like, I'm the brother of James. I do have some awareness of what's going on in the church, and he's not, he's not sort of tooting his own horn, but he's, there's a, just an honest assessment of, I do know sort of where I'm from, but a, a greater assessment of humility of I know where I'm from, and that is, I know who I am. I'm the servant of Christ. And that's his first qualification. He doesn't say, I'm the brother of James and a servant of Christ. He's a bondservant of Christ and happens to be a brother of James. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So he's opening up this book with a, with a benediction to the church. And this tells us who the letter is written for. This letter is written to people who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. This is a letter for Christians. If you read this letter and you're not a Christian, it will not make that much sense to you. You'll be like, I don't, I don't get it. And that's, in a sense, true of all Scripture, where the Holy Spirit will speak to us through the Word, but the Holy Spirit has to be doing the work in our hearts in order for us to comprehend the Word. And so the closed heart reads the Word of God and says, I refuse to listen to let the Holy Spirit speak to me through the Word of God. You know what usually happens? They say, I didn't get anything out of it. But if an open heart says, God, I want to hear what you have to say through your Word. I'm coming expectantly, then what happens is the Holy Spirit helps us understand what the Holy Spirit is saying. And he, he reveals his word to us and opens up our eyes to better comprehend it. But notice, and this is really important because Jude, when he gets into sort of the meat of the letter, we're going to be tempted to lose focus to this, but notice that God is encompassing every aspect of the believer's life. This is a letter to people who have been called, past tense. People who have been sanctified, cleansed. You've had your sins forgiven, and you've been preserved. And what's interesting about that is that he has preserved as a past tense word, but it's really a future tense concept. Because when we look at our lives, we think, okay, wait a second, I hope God preserves me, and I hope I'm faithful until I die. But Romans tells us that God sees us as glorified. He sees us, in a sense, if you will, in the past tense, because he's outside of time. And so he sees beyond time, and in his goodness and in his comprehension, he sees the work that he's completed. And so what's happening, there's an assurance here, this, you know, this letter is for the believers, but there's also an assurance even in the opening of, okay, God has chosen you, God has cleansed you, and God has kept and is keeping, and is keeping so fully that he will, he's able to say, I have kept you, past tense. There's no 
There's no crack in God's control here. And that's not room, that's not uh, grounds to say, wow, God is like kind of an authority, you know, a, a power jerk or whatever. It's, it's saying, no, there's no room, there's, there's no slip. God's not going to accidentally lose you, right? God has you from the beginning to the end. He has you totally covered, and that's who this book is for. If you are covered by Jesus, this book is for you. And Jude says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, verse 3. While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I love this. Jude says, you know, I just I wanted to write you about our common salvation. I wanted to write a letter about, you know, I was kind of that one. I wanted to write Ephesians 2, you know, and just that like, hey guys, God's awesome. We're saved. Let's respond. Isn't God awesome? But he says, I found it necessary to write a different letter. And so this is not Ephesians. This is Jude. Jude says, I found, I found it necessary to write to you something different. And I love, I've had it a couple times when I've been at a conference and I've gotten to listen to a pastor stand up, walk to the podium and say, you know, I had notes ready for what I was about to say and I think the Lord told me to say something totally different. So I'm going to try and walk in obedience. And when a pastor stands up and says that, there's, there's a level of humility that they're walking in to say, I might look foolish here, that oftentimes brings an amazing work of God to really speak very directly to people. And Jude here, again, is just walking in that humility. Like, I wanted to write you an awesome, you know, grace and peace letter, and, but I found it necessary. The Holy Spirit compelled me to write to you something different. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You need to contend earnestly. The word there is where we get our word agonize. You need to agonize over the gospel. It was once for all delivered to the saints. So understand, first of all, that the gospel has been completed in the sense that no one will ever bring fresh revelation that goes outside of the word of God. Okay? Yes, the Holy Spirit can speak to us in dreams and visions through the words and encouragement of other believers, but it will never... It will always come along to complement the Word of God. It will never go against the Word of God. And so if someone says, well, the Holy Spirit said this to me, but the Word of God said this to me, and they're two separate things, then the Holy Spirit did not say that. that that's your test. If the, if the quote-unquote Holy Spirit says something that contradicts the Word of God, you did not hear the Holy Spirit, period. Because the Holy Spirit will not contradict himself. But he says, this is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What we have been handed is complete. No one's going to come up with a, a fifth gospel that changes everything we understand. Okay? This has been handed to us. It's been delivered to the saints. And Jude says you need to contend earnestly for it. You need to fight for it like it matters. And that's interesting because he just told us that God calls us, sanctifies us, and preserves us. And he'll be going back and forth throughout the book. You know, God is doing all the work, but you need to be agonizing over the gospel. God is doing all the work, but you need to contend earnestly because this has been delivered to the saints and you need to take it very seriously. He goes on in verse 4 and he says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we need to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, is that men have crept in. And that's how false teaching comes. This, is a, this book is a warning against false teaching. 
And it comes by stealth. False teaching does not trumpet itself. It comes in very softly, and it's usually very clean, and it's usually very friendly, and it usually has just this little sin that is, you know, if we just understand the scripture just right, we're just going to let this, you know, there's this one little sin that is not a big deal. But it's always quiet. It's very soft and subtle, just a little, just a little extra. You know, the, the gospel is great. There's, it's, it's a great start. It gets you 98% of the way there. You just need like a hair extra knowledge on top. And, and you can have conversations with false teachers and you can go, and you can find just hundreds of things that you agree on. But there's these one or two things where you say, wait a second, that's, hold it, hold it, hold it. That's a problem. And he says, these men have crept in. And, and so you need to contend earnestly because false teaching has come. Jude is writing this in the first century. Okay, we sometimes think like, oh, the first century, you know, the book of Acts, it was so awesome. And, and everybody was just on fire for God. And there was no corruption in the church. And everybody was just obsessed with serving Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and working miracles. And it was awesome. And I wish we could be there. That's not how the book of Acts goes. Yes, there's an amazing work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Yes, there are amazing miracles. Yes, the Holy Spirit is doing incredible things. But what else is in the book of Acts? God kills a husband and wife for lying to the Holy Spirit. Paul is beaten every city he goes to. And one of them specifically, he's beaten so badly that he's either dead or presumed dead. I think probably he's dead and the Lord brings him back to life. Paul loses his best friend in ministry. The only man initially who believed his conversion was real due to really a, a frankly, pretty petty argument. There's a lot of, Paul says, you know, Paul's right, Luke is writing, describing his and Paul's journey. He says, we tried to go here and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let us. We tried to go here, the Holy Spirit would not let us. God said, nope, you can't go there. But we weren't getting clear direction. So finally, we just wound up here. And, and then after we ran out of every other option, Paul had a vision and we decided that's where we were supposed to go. Book of Acts has got a lot of pain and suffering in it, but it also has the power of the Holy Spirit. It has false teaching coming in. And Jude is writing this later in the first century, and it's already coming in. And, and false teaching just it started early, and it's been around ever since. And that is why Jude is warning us, you have got to contend earnestly. You've got to live life seriously. Because Christianity is not something where you can be passively faithful until you die. No one is going to accidentally be a victorious Christian. No one is accidentally going to be fruitful and accidentally walk in victory over their sin and accidentally let the Holy Spirit do a work in their life. It won't happen passively. Christianity happens by walking with the Lord. It happens by contending. And so he says, these men have crept in. And notice specifically what he says. He says, they turn the grace of our God into lewdness. One of the primary tenets of false doctrine, almost universally, is that it takes the concept of God's grace which is that God can forgive any sin and turns it into an excuse which says, therefore, God is okay with any sin. Or maybe not any sin, but the sin that the false teacher is most comfortable with. And that's, that's the, if you're looking for a, a mark of false teaching, it's almost always, what do they do with Jesus Christ? And then find the sin that they excuse. It, it, is, it will be there. There is a sin somewhere in false teaching, be it greed, pride, lust, whatever, it's there. And you watch, and there's something there, because they turn the grace of our God into lewdness. They turn the fact that God has forgiven all of us with a depth of love that we can't comprehend into an excuse to then abuse that love and that grace. They've crept in. And now, 
What Jude does is he switches gears. And he's going to back up and give us examples of this throughout the Old Testament. And so Jude does a rapid-fire, massive overview of the Old Testament. And he's assuming that his readers have a very thorough working knowledge of the Scriptures. And we'll try and just kind of work them through one at a time, give some background, ex- explain the context. But um, it's six or seven examples. I initially, I was writing, making my notes, I wrote four, and then I crossed it out and wrote five, and then I crossed it out and wrote six. And I could maybe have crossed it out and wrote seven, but I was writing, running out of paper, and so I think it's six-ish. Might be seven. We'll see. You can count it up yourself, and if you like one number better than the other, God bless you. Verse five. He says, but I want to remind you Though you once knew this. So he's about ready to give us all these examples, but he's saying, hey, look, you know this. You know to be on guard against false teaching. You know that God is doing all the work, but you also know that you need to be working diligently. You know that God is in control, but you still have a role. So I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So if you remember in the Old Testament, the Lord delivers the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. They, they experienced the ten plagues against the nation of Egypt where the Lord is dealing with their Egyptian taskmasters and then he brings them out. He parts the Red Sea. They walk through the Red Sea. They're about to go into the promised land. The Lord says, all right, go in. I'm going to give you victory. Moses says, okay, let me send in 12 spies real fast. The 12 spies go in. They come back. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, you know what? It's an amazing land. God promised it to us. God has been faithful with all of these miracles so far. Of course God will keep his word. Let's go. And 10 of the spies said, you know what? God has done some amazing things, but this one is too big for God. We cannot go in. We will die. And the scripture says in one night, the entire camp, which was somewhere between probably two and four million people, turned against the word of the Lord. The entire camp said, you're right, we cannot, we cannot make it. The word of God, the power of God is not sufficient to deliver us. And so he's given an example, and, and the Lord said, okay, you know what? <laughs> And the people all said, oh my gosh, our kids are all going to get destroyed. And the Lord said, you know what, actually, your kids are going to be the ones who win this war. So the Israelites wandered around in the desert for 40 years while that first generation died off. And the second generation came in and conquered the land. And Jews just making a warning here. Bad teaching spreads. And an example of the Israelites, it spread through complaining. He goes on, verse 6, and says, in the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, the context of, of what is the, how does the spiritual realm of angels and demons work is a little bit abstract for us because the scripture does not elaborate on it that extensively. But Jude gives us a couple things here that we know. And we understand there's an inference in Revelation that when Satan rebelled against the Lord, a third of, of the armies of the angels went with them. Now, we don't know how many angels there are, okay? Jesus told Peter that he could call down 12 legions of angels if he needed to. That might be just the reserve troops. That might be the, you know, the Navy SEALs of the angel crew. I, we have no idea how many there are. But a third, potentially, had a chance to either stay in fellowship with God where they were or choose to follow Satan. And they chose to follow Satan. Because false teaching spreads as in a, through pride. Satan's sin was pride. He said, I, I want to ascend. I am not content with the role God has placed me in. I'm not content with being in the presence of God continually. I want something else. 
And a third of the angels said, yeah, us too. And he says, understand, and he's making a couple points here. He's making a point about how false teaching spreads. He's also making a point again that the Lord deals with it. He says, you contend earnestly, but the Lord deals with it. Okay, the people refused to go into the land. The Lord took care of them. The angels rebelled against the Lord. He says, the Lord has reserved some of them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. There are, there's a spiritual world right now of angels and demons that we sort of coexist in. Okay, but there are angelic or demonic forces that are currently chained up, that are currently held back and are not going to be released until the judgment of God on this earth. So just, I mean, so, so ponder that for a second. Like, think about the evil in the world. And then think about the fact that there are actually evils that are not currently allowed. The Lord, the Lord has drawn a line. He has, he has chained up certain forces and said, you, you're, not, you're not getting out until, until the judgment. And understand, that, that's two things. That's contend earnestly for the faith. Understand the Lord is the one dealing with it. Okay? A, and understand also, false teaching is a dangerous game. So false teaching spread through the Israelites through complaining. It spread through the angelic host, through pride. Verse 7, he says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah are famous, famous Paris cities. We still use the word sodomite today in the English language. And it means something very specific and very perverse. But Sodom and Gomorrah are a city where the Lord was coming to judge it because of their wickedness. And two angels came in to judge the city. And the men of Sodom rose up to uh, commit sexual perversion with them. And the angels blinded all the men of the city and then got Lot and his family out of the city and destroyed the city. And false teaching spreads through lust. But the Lord still deals with it. Okay? False teaching so it spreads, and Jews just making a point here, really a, a very broad point of understand that there's always a sin associated with false teaching. There's always a, well, okay, this is bad, but this is okay. This is bad, but surely God, when, surely God doesn't really care that much about whether or not we're complaining. Surely God doesn't care that much about whether we're just like prideful. It's not prideful if it's true, right? Surely God doesn't care that much if it's just a little bit of lust. Like, I was just born this way. Scripture doesn't care how you were born. Scripture says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus Christ. I don't care which perversion you're more naturally attracted to. Anything outside of the marital bond of one man and one woman is a sin. It's an abomination that needs to be repented of. And we, and we give it all these nice, cute words in English to try and soften it up. right? And, this, and we sometimes need to go back to, what does the Scripture call it? We used to have, to, you know, I want to be sensitive ish, but now we have things that we call affairs. Scripture calls it adultery and whoredom and perversion and abomination and a desecration. And that's not quite as nice because the Lord takes sin very seriously because when you start excusing sin, you're separating yourself from God. And when you start separating yourself from God, you're putting yourself in a position to not only not receive the blessings of God, but to start receiving the judgments of God. Because God judges Sin. God takes sin and rebellion very seriously. And that's the point Jude is making for us. Verse 8. 
He says, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. It kind of always cracks me up that that's in the list. But false teachers insult their leaders. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beast, and these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. Okay, if you read that paragraph, you think, what on earth is Jude talking about? And it's a great question, because in a sense, nobody knows what on earth Jude is talking about. So we have no scriptural reference outside of this about the fact that Michael the archangel is contending with Satan over the body of Moses. Okay, we really don't know for sure what this is going on here, but we have... So anything I say for the next like two minutes is speculation, okay? That's just, just know that. But what do we know in Scripture? We know that Moses died at the age of 120 and that his strength wasn't diminished. The Lord had kept him not just alive but fit and healthy up until the age of 120 and then the Lord let him die. And it says that the Lord buried him and nobody knows where the place is. And if you think about it, that's entirely appropriate that, that could, because just in the way that human beings create myths and legends. If a 120-year-old man was perfectly healthy and we had his burial site, don't you think we, it would have been turned into either some sort of health resort where, you know, kiss the bone, pay the priest, and get your health, right? It would have, it would have become, what would have been the testimony of God's faithfulness in the life of a man would have become an idolatry site of if we commit the right act, we can get the same power. And... So evidently, the Lord said, no, we're going we're to basically hide the body of Moses. We're going to bury him where nobody knows. And based on what we're seeing here, it would appear that maybe the Lord said, all right, Michael, that's your job. Bury Moses, which is a pretty high honor. Like, think about just the role of Michael in this, if you will, that Michael gets the task of burying the man who we know from Scripture had closer communion with God on earth than any other human being in history. Moses was the person who says could talk to God face-to-face -face like a man talks to his friend. Moses was the person who, at the time that he died, could say, I've written the entire Bible. Because the entire Bible, in its context at that point in time, was entirely written by Moses. He was the guy who could say that. Moses had a very distinct relationship with God. And Michael gets the privilege of, of whatever you want to call it, disposing of the body. And Satan evidently wanted the body. And we don't know why, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but Michael, here, here's the point Jude is making, Michael didn't try to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan. Michael had a job to do. And so he told Satan, you know what, the Lord rebuke you. Michael didn't need to go up against Satan and, you know, bind him and, and soak him in the blood and do all that. Michael just had a job to do. Michael needed to contend earnestly for what he had been given. And so he said, you know what, Satan... Shut up and let the Lord deal with you. You're not my problem. And, and he had a job. And Judah's making a point, kind of a, a, a double point, if you will. The first is, hey, contend earnestly, but God's doing the work. Right? And, and don't sweat it when false teaching comes in, but sweat it when false teaching comes in. God is in control. Our job is not to fix every doctrine. Our, job, our job is to contend earnestly for the faith. And those aren't, it's not a contradiction, it's a order of priorities. It's not contend earnestly against false teaching. It's contend earnestly for the faith. If you're contending for the faith, all other false teaching will be exposed. 
If you try and find every little angle of false teaching, you'll get distracted, and all of a sudden you're not sure if you're contending for the faith or just contending against people. Contend for the faith. What has God given you to do? God gave Michael a job. Michael did it and did not get distracted from his mission just because there was a battle to fight. Michael had a mission, and he did it. What is your mission? What has God given you? And are you contending earnestly for it? So he says, these false teachers, verse 10, speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beast, in these things they corrupt themselves. They take the, the tendencies that God has put in the human heart and the human body, and they pervert them to sinful ends. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Now we get another example. Cain is someone who rebelled against God because he said, I will approach God on my own terms. Cain and Abel both brought an offering to God, and we don't know the full context of why God rejected it, but up to that point, we know that there had been, uh, that God had provided for Adam and Eve animal coverings to cover their nakedness, which means an animal died. In order for Adam and Eve to be covered before God, there was death. And Abel brought an offering of an animal. Abel understood inherently that there's, there's death involved in fellowship with God. Cain brought the produce of the land. Cain said, you know, here's what I did, and I hope God takes it. And God said, no, I don't take it. And whether or not Cain understood that at the first, he understood that after the fact when God said, I do not accept your offering. Cain could have then repented, sacrificed an animal, and experienced fellowship with God. But he said, no, I will meet God on my terms. And if God thinks there needs to be blood, then fine, I will kill my brother. If God wants blood, I'll give him blood. But I'll come to God on my terms. And he says, that's what false teachers do. They don't say, what does the word of God say, and is it correcting me? They say, what do I want the word of God to say, and I will make it say that. He says, they have run greedily in the error of Balaam. Balaam is a fascinating guy in scripture. He's a true prophet of God, but he's also a false prophet. And he understands hearing the voice of the Lord, but he has no interest in walking with the Lord. And Balaam gets hired by the king of Moab to curse the Israelites, and God actually refuses to allow Balaam to curse them. Balaam is, is trying. He is trying to curse the Israelites, and he can't get the words out of his mouth. God, God is basically taking over and shutting him down. And so he tells the king of Moab, I can't do that. But what I can do is take my knowledge of the word of God to benefit myself and to achieve my own ends. So he said, here's what I know. I can't curse the people, but I know that God takes sin seriously. So here's what you do. You send your women into the tents of the Israelite men. You get them committed in sexual immorality. And then you have them pull out their idols and explain that the sexual immorality is part of an act of worship. And if the men are too fired up, they won't care. They'll go through with an act of sexual immorality that is now also an act of idolatry. And the Lord will deal with them. Because the Lord takes sin and purity among his people seriously. And the king of Moab did it. And I think it's 24,000 men died in the plague because the Lord dealt with the sin of the people. Because the Lord takes sin very seriously. But the Lord also dealt with Balaam. Balaam gets killed very shortly after that. Because Balaam, he knew, he, he, he knew the Lord, arguably. He knew, he knew enough about the Lord to have a relationship with the Lord, to speak prophecy, to actually be filled with the Spirit in a, in a weird sort of a way. Balaam's a, a weird character in Scripture, okay? But he took the word of God, he took his knowledge of the Lord and said, I'm going to use this to achieve what I want. 
and I'm going to make sure that I get what I can out of God, but I have no interest in obedience to the Lord. I have no interest in walking with the Lord. I am interested in making sure that I can get what I want, which is money and power. And I will use the Lord to accomplish that. And then he says, they have they've run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah was a Levite in the, during the period when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. And he rebelled against Moses and said, Moses, you know what? You got a power trip, which... Incidentally, usually the guy walking around accusing everyone of having a power trip is the guy with the power trip. Just kind of tends to work out that way. Moses, you're taking too much on yourself. What makes you think you're so special? What have you done? Written the Bible? I mean, what have you done? Like, really, what have you done? Part of the Red Sea? Like, I mean, you know, like, what if, seriously, I mean, name one thing that God did through you that he hasn't done through me, right? God loves everybody the same. We ought to have the same authority that you do. Of course, I will put myself in the role that I want to have in the kingdom of God. And you know what happens to Korah? Moses, Moses at this point is so frustrated that he's just like, I don't care. I'd, I'd be ch- totally chill if the Lord just wanted to kill me right now. You guys are such a hassle. I am fine if the Lord just kills me, okay? You are not worth the pain. But Moses gets all the people out, and he says, okay, guys, listen. Here's the deal. If these men die by any other cause, then we'll say it's completely happenstance. But if the earth opens up right now, and swallows them all, and then closes again. Then we'll know that the Lord is dealing with them. And he says, everybody stand back. Everybody kind of you know, scoots back just a little bit. And the earth opens up, swallows them, and closes back up. And you know what the people say? They say, Moses, you've got a power trip. They like completely don't get it. But Korah is a false teacher who has the idea that I will determine the role that I will serve in the kingdom of God. I will. Korah has no interest in what does God want of me. It's not how can I best respond in thankfulness to what God is doing. It's I'm going to do this. And God had better accept it. And God says, no, I'm actually under no obligation to accept your demands. Because I'm God and you're not. Right? I happen to be in charge here, buddy. And you're not. But Jude is making this point that false teaching will come in a huge variety of ways. And we need to contend earnestly for the faith. So be aware of how it will come. It will come by excusing your pride or excusing your lust or excusing your greed or telling you that you can approach God on your own terms or that God loves everybody. And, and, and a lot of times there's these, there's these little truths in false teaching. They kind of get in the door and Jude says, you know what, they're all, if, they, if they're excusing sin, if they're denying the role of God, they're false teaching. You need to contend earnestly for the faith Verse 12, he goes on, he says, These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. He says, these false teachers have nothing to offer you. And especially in the context of a more agricultural society, he says, they're clouds without water. Isn't that a bummer? If you're, if you're in a drought and the clouds come up and you're like, okay, this might be it, and they just keep going and nothing comes out. He says there are late autumn trees without fruit. If you hit October and you haven't had any fruit on your tree, you're not getting any fruit on your tree that year. That's what false teaching is. There's a lot of leaves. There's no fruit. A lot of cloud, a lot of shade, no rain. Verse 14, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, 
Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The Lord has a thing about the ungodly. You notice that in this passage? He says, the Lord comes to execute judgment. Now this is the blend. This, this is where you have to, have to read all of Scripture. And you can't just pick out what you like. He says, hey, God calls us, he sanctifies us, he preserves us. Hey, contend earnestly. Hey, the Lord can deal with them. Right? So, it's not our, it's, so there's, there's, a, there's a massive call to action. There's also a massive sense of peace. Wait on the Lord. Be with the Lord. Your job is not to fix everything. Your job is to just contend earnestly. Verse 16, these, speaking of false teachers, are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. He says, hey, remember the words that were spoken. This, this is a, the awesome thing about being a Christian, is it's pretty darn basic, right? Like it's the most prof- some of the most profound concepts you could ever approach are in Scripture. But they're all summed up very neatly. Like, Jesus loves me. You will never unpack it all, but you can grasp it completely. Right? And so he says, you know what? Hey, you want to deal with false teaching? Remember what was spoken to you. You remember the word of God that has been handed down to you. At this point, Jude is uh, most likely one of the last books of the New Testament. Probably not the last. It's probably the Gospel of John or the book of Revelation. But Jude's one of the last. And he's saying, hey, remember what was written. Remember what they've told us. Verse 20. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. This is awesome. So you've got you to contend earnestly. Be ready to go to war. Christianity is not a game, it's a war. Take life seriously. Live life forward. Live like it matters because it does. Because false teachers have crept in. Okay, so what's... So what's our MO? What's the solution? What's, what's our next step? Right? What, what's our, you know, our tactical operative or whatever you want to you know, give it a, a fancy little zing to it? What's our next plan? Keep yourselves in the love of God. It's kind of uh, underwhelming, if you will. Right? Let's go to war. Let's, let's, you know, let's band of brothers and everything else. What do we got to do? We got to keep ourselves in the love of God. Stay close to Jesus Christ. It's the most simple and the most profound thing you can ever do with your life. If you want to contend earnestly, if you want to live life like it really, really matters, if you want to live and be an effective witness to the souls that are around you, if you care about the fact that heaven is real and hell is real and we have a mission to be as big of a pain in Satan's life as possible, by dragging every soul out of hell that we possibly can. You know you do that? You stay close to Jesus Christ. You get really good 
at knowing Jesus, at listening for his voice, at reading what he said to us, obeying what he said to us, doing what he said we should do, and then you do it again. It's one of the most incredible things about life in the context of the Christian walk is here's what you do. You say, Lord, what's the next thing you want me to do? And he tells you, and you do it. And you say, Lord, what's the next thing you want me to do? And he tells you, and you do it. And you say, Lord, what's the next thing you want me to do? And he tells you, and you do it. And you'll never be bored. And you'll always be just a hair scared, but you'll also be a hair excited. Because you're going you're gonna to be doing something that's just a little bit more than what you're comfortable with, but totally under the realm of what he's comfortable with. Why? Because he's called you, sanctified you, and preserved you. He's totally got the whole thing under control, but he's inviting us to be part of the plan. Not because we, he needs our help, but because he's nice enough that it's like he thinks it'd be cute to let us you know, kind of be in the picture. So keep yourselves in the love of God. Verse 22, And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Basically, he's saying, you know what? Understand that you're going to approach different people different ways. Some people are going to come to the Lord because somebody says, you know what? You just need to know that God loves you so much that he died for your sins and rose again. And he wants you to have fellowship with him. And some people are going to get saved when you tell them, you know what? You are on a path to go to hell. You have separated yourself from God and you need to repent because you are walking in sin. And you cannot exist in the presence of a holy God if there's sin in your life. And you cannot also cleanse yourself from your sin. And so you need the salvation that Jesus Christ offers to take away your sins and clothe you in his righteousness. He says, you know what? There's different approaches because there's different people out there. So how do you know which one is the right one for the conversation you're having? Well, you keep yourself in the love of God. And the Holy Spirit will tell you right there which one it is. Because the Lord speaks to us all. The Lord, the Lord convicts us all in different ways. He works in our hearts in different ways. And so you can't create a formula. This is the most exciting thing about walking with the Lord. There aren't any formulas other than just keep walking with the Lord. There's not a perfect four-step plan to save every person on earth. There's not a perfect three-step plan. You, you, you know what the plan is? Keep yourselves in the love of God. And say, God, what do you want me to say right now? What do you want me to do right now? And he'll tell you. You know, oh, I think I came across false teaching. What, what should I say right now? Oh, thank you, Lord. You brought that verse to mind. I'm having a conversation with somebody. I don't really know what to say. Holy Spirit, would you give me wisdom right now? Hey, look at that. The Lord gave me an understanding of what they're really dealing with. You walk with the Lord. You keep yourselves in the love of God. Contending earnestly for the faith is the same thing thing as walk with Jesus Christ. And now as he wraps up, you know, it's interesting, he's, he's, the emphasis on false teachers is that there's always this little angle about what do they get out of it. They get their little pride or their little lust or their little greed or their little approach God on my own terms. And Jesus says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Who is that? That would be the Lord. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. He says God can present us faultless. He can keep us from stumbling, and he can bring us into his presence with exceeding joy. Now that's quite a God right there. If your God can't do those things, you're serving the wrong God. If your God is, is 
okay at what he does, you're serving the wrong God. But Jude's, Jude is writing us a letter about contending earnestly. Jude is writing this as a guy who at this point has kept himself in the love of God. Just like John, just like Peter in their letters, Jude's an old guy writing this one. Looking back at decades of having kept himself in the love of God, he says, you know what? I know a couple of things. I know that God is able to keep us from stumbling and present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And I also know that to him, I want him to get the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now and forever. And it's an interesting thought because here's the deal. One of the, one of the immutable, unchangeable, fixed laws of the universe is that God will get all the glory in the end. God will absolutely get all the glory. But we get the privilege of helping to kind of push the glory along. It's almost like there's a massive river flowing. And God says, hey, if you want, you can kind of like put your hand in and kind of shove the water downstream. Right? We're not, in a sense, you could say, well, we're not doing anything. But you know what? God has invited us to do it. He'll get it all. But he's giving us the opportunity to say, hey, if you want to be a part of it, you can come into this by contending earnestly. You can put your hand in and push the glory to the Lord. And Jude, he's warning us about what false teachers do. And then he, he, he finishes the book, not by looking at false teachers. He's not saying, hey, watch out for the Mormons or watch out for the Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't let the Muslims pull a fast one on you. You know, he said, you know what? Just remember this. We want God to get all the glory. Right? What, what a f just fantastic way to wrap up a, ch a chunk of Scripture. Right? And so as we wrap up, then the question becomes, are you contending earnestly? Are you living like it matters? And this isn't an altar call per se, but it is a call to reflect and I don't know everybody's heart here, okay? And so, you know, Jesus said there's kind of two approaches, so I'll give you both approaches. One is if you're walking in sin and you're not repenting, then that means that you haven't understood the grace of God, which may mean that you are not a Christian, and you need to repent. You need to confess your sin, forsake your sin, and, under, and, and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you. And he will. On the flip side, you may just need to know that God loves you very much. Very much. Enough to die for you, right? And then ask yourself, going forward, if you comprehend that, am I contending earnestly? If you want a New Year's resolution, we're almost to a new year. You want to put contend earnestly on that list? I want to live my life as a Christian as if it actually matters. Because you know what? It does. Because the world is, is on a path to hell. And we did not, God did not save us so that we could have a cute club where we all dress alike and we all make the same amount of money and there aren't people who make us uncomfortable. God saved us because he is good, but because he's also inviting us to be part of what he is doing. And he's inviting us to contend earnestly. And so we have that opportunity, we have that privilege, we have that responsibility, we have that gift. He has handed it to us. What are you going to do about it? So Lord, we thank you for the book of Jude. Thank you for the life of the man Jude. 
who just did his thing, kept himself in the love of God, and, and eventually wrote a very short book that is very powerful. And we pray, God, that you would work, work those words deep into our hearts, that you would stir us up. God, we want to contend earnestly, not because you're dependent on us, but because you are so good, because Jesus is so real. Heaven is so real, and hell is also so real. We want to live like it matters. So Lord, as we're wrapping up tonight, as we're wrapping up this year, I pray that you would stir up our hearts. God, break us of our sins. Remind us of your grace. We want to be people who walk in victory by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.